There are a lot of quarterbacks in the NFL draft this year. My name is Danny Kelly, and I host the Ringer NFL Draft Show with Danny Heifetz, Ben Solak, and Craig Borlbeck. We cover trades, free agency, and the draft, obviously. We'll tell you about everything, including which quarterbacks are good, which quarterbacks are not as good, and which quarterbacks are just Kirk Cousins. Search the Ringer NFL Draft Show on Spotify. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We are recording pre-Super Bowl after the Celtics and the Heat played a wild game in Miami. Get to that in a second here. We'll also chat with Joe Murray from 98.5. The Sports Hub will get into the Patriots offseason so far in terms of the coaching changes. Steve Belichick going to Washington. Also, Bill O'Brien ending up at BC. Could BC actually be relevant again? Check in on the Bs too a little bit with Joe as well. But where we start, of course, is with this Celtics game that... To me, I came away disappointed. I know the Celtics won, but this game to me reminded me a lot of the issues that this team has had in the postseason in the past. We'll get to that in a second. And of course, from a personnel perspective, the Heat don't even have their best player in this game, Jimmy Butler, who unfortunately was dealing with the death of a family member. So wish the best for Jimmy and his family. But on the court, they don't have Jimmy Butler, who we know at times has dominated the Celtics in the postseason. So when he's out of the lineup, you think the Celtics probably win relatively easily. And it looked like they were. And then, oh, by the way, our old friend Terry Rozier, unfortunately, went down with an injury as well. That looked nasty in terms of you didn't know what it was, but you just saw him holding his leg and you felt like, oh, this is going to be a serious injury. So hopefully everything is okay with Terry Rozier because that looked like he was in excruciating pain. But the Heat, they still brought it without their best player in Jimmy Butler. They still had Bam, but they don't, of course, have Jimmy Butler. And you know that the Heat are going to bring their A game every time they play against the Celtics, right? This has become a real rivalry in the NBA, and the Heat were clearly up for this game, and they kept fighting back. So just a couple of things on why this game reminded me of postseasons in the past and why I have a little bit of a concern here. So the first thing is this. The fourth quarter, there were two main issues. The first one was Jalen. I I don't know what's going on with him late in this game where he's getting into it with Duncan Robinson. He just throws him down where their arms were sort of locked, and he was complaining as if it shouldn't be a flagrant. Everybody thinks that should have been a flagrant. If you're watching the game and you didn't think that should have been a flagrant, I don't know what to tell you. So that ends up being two free throws for Duncan Robinson and the ball. Not to mention these guys are going at it again after that Jalen's trying to plead his case with the ref even after it's called. I don't know what you're complaining about at that point. The call's already made. They reviewed it for like half an hour, which brings me to a whole different thing with Steve Javi on there. I don't know why they have to talk to that guy for forever. Although I will say this about the broadcast. A very good broadcast. Ryan Rucco's awesome. I like Richard Jefferson and JJ Reddick's awesome. So that was a really good broadcast. But anyway, getting back to the original point here. So at that point in the game, 
The Celtics are in control. It's 96-87. There's no reason to do that if you're Jalen Brown. It's a foul on Duncan Robinson. You're getting the ball there. So why commit that flagrant? I understand you could be aggravated. I know you guys had your arms locked, but it's just unnecessary. That's like the definition of an unnecessary act. And I know they call it a hostile act, but it was unnecessary. So after that, Duncan Robinson naturally makes both of his free throws. He makes it a 96 to 89 game. And then Miami gets the ball. Bam gets an and one. I didn't care for the foul call, but nonetheless, Bam gets an and one. He hits the free throw, makes it 96 to 92. Okay, so that nine point lead is down to four. So that play by Jalen Brown, and it's not all his fault because of course he wasn't defending Bam, but that turn of events, so to speak, ends up costing you five points because Jalen late in the game loses his composure. This is stuff we've seen with the Celtics in the playoffs before, and especially against this Miami team. You have to keep your composure. Jalen certainly didn't do that. Okay, so then after that, it's 99 to 94. Jalen gets to the line. He misses both free throws. Jalen now on the season is shooting 72.9% from the free throw line. This is another thing that you get concerned about in the playoffs because Jalen has missed critical free throws during the regular season and in the postseason. And if you look at that number, that's 72.9%. That is 100th of 114 qualifiers. Guys that have taken enough free throws, he's 100th out of 114, okay? So after that, it's still 99-94. He travels. So back-to-back possessions, he misses two free throws, and then he travels. Then he misses a wide-open three. Now, eventually, he did hit a three to make it 104-98. Great find by Tatum. And then he had a cut and a finish where Tatum found him for a bucket, made it 106-100. Then it's 106 to 101, I should say. He loses the ball in transition. He just loses it. He's dribbling up the court. The Celtics have an advantage. Just loses the ball. How many times have we seen that in the postseason before? What does that end up leading to? A Tyler Hero on the other side to make it 106-104. So the turnovers, the maturation process, the late game execution. This is stuff that has been an issue for Jalen Brown and the Celtics in general in the playoffs. And we saw it against Miami, a game that they should have Blown Miami out in the fourth quarter. Jalen ends up getting into this stupid issue with Duncan Robinson. Costs you five points there. Then he's having late turnovers. He's missing free throws. This is just stuff that cannot happen. You can't defend Jalen for what happened late in this game. And Jalen, I give him a lot of credit. He had this great stretch where he did not have the great start to the season. We talked about it on the pod. Then he had this unbelievable stretch. But if you look at the previous six games prior to tonight, 16 points per game. 7.3 rebounds, 4.5 assists, a minus 56. The boss, Bill Simmons, texted me, said something happened in that Clippers game where he has not been the same since. The numbers would indicate that. During that stretch, he was also one of 16 from deep. He did hit the 1-3 tonight. He was one of four, of course. We mentioned it, the shot that made it 104-98. But that minus 56 he was during that six-game stretch, 17 points worse than any other Celtic. So he went from having, oh, what's going on at the beginning of the season? Is he fitting in with the new members of the team, so many different guys now that can score, that can get you buckets. Is he fitting in to, wow, Jalen's playing really well. His playmaking is better. And he's picking up all these defensive assignments. We talked about that to now he's playing really poorly. He went from playing the best basketball of his career to this stretch. So that to me was a big issue. Jalen late in the game, getting into it with Duncan Robinson and Jalen missing free throws, turning the basketball over. It was a bad game for Jalen. I know he had 20 points in this game. There's no way around it that you can argue that this is a good game for Jalen Brown. Okay. He let the heat back in the game. Okay. The other thing that drove me crazy in this game 
Kristaps Porzingis is your best weapon late, okay? And I'm not saying he's your best player. Jason Tatum is your best player. Kristaps Porzingis is your best weapon late. How many times have we talked about that he is the superpower with this team, right? I've compared him to Gronk in the past. When Gronk plays, the Patriots rarely lose, or I should say when Gronk played, same thing is true about Kristaps Porzingis. When Kristaps Porzingis is on the court, you have an advantage that you otherwise wouldn't have. We've also talked about the fact that Derek White, late in games, and Derek White did not play well tonight, did not hit a three, only had the six points. But how many times have we talked about Derek White's late game execution? And he's one of the best clutch players in the NBA by the numbers. Derek White is a pick and roll ball handler, incredibly efficient. We've talked about it time after time, 85th percentile, 1.04 points per possession. Just to remind you how good that number is. It's better than Damian Lillard. It's better than James Harden. It's better than Donovan Mitchell. It's better than Jamal Murray. That's how efficient he is as a pick and roll ball handler. They didn't do that at all in the last six minutes of the game when the game was close. This is your most reliable decision maker. You didn't run any offense through Derek White. Secondarily, with Porzingis, getting back to Porzingis here, he's averaging 1.30 points per possession as a roller, which the best offense in the league is 1.20. So that's how efficient he is there. And then you also look at the fact that he's your most efficient player in general in the post and actually the most efficient post player in the entire NBA where he's shooting 68.9%, averaging 1.41 points per possession. That's your cheat code late in games. Okay, so you have a great decision maker late in games. You have the most efficient post player in the NBA. Where was that? Because Chris Hobbs Porzingis, and look, if the reason the substitution patterns were thrown off was because when Porzingis left, which by the way, this... I hold my breath every time the guy leaves, but he leaves with like the back contusion. He comes back in. So I don't know if that's why the minutes got messed up. I just watched Joe Mazzulla's press conference. He wasn't asked about it after the game, but Porzingis came out of the game at the 609 mark. He didn't check back into the game until 135 left. I mean, what's going on? So I, I'm hoping that the answer is his substitution pattern got fucked up because he, of course, was dealing with the back contusion. I hope that's why. Because he was back in the game. Then he comes out with 609. Joe had multiple opportunities to take a timeout and get him back on the court. I guess I guess the argument he would have, and I don't know, because he wasn't asked about this, is, hey, we don't want them to set up their defense. I don't care if they set up their defense when you get the seven foot three guy out there that's the most efficient guy in the post in the entire NBA. So you had multiple opportunities to take a timeout, get him back on the floor. They didn't do that. I don't know why he, at one point he was up at the scorer's table, but he didn't get back in until 135 left. So this is what we're talking about. Like he's incredibly dominant when he's in the game. And if you go through it, the whole first quarter, they were just playing through Porzingis, right? Hits a three ball, makes it 11-9. They have, they're trying to play a zone. He posts Hakez, he scores on Hakez, makes it 13-12, to seeking out the mismatch. Rim run, scores on Robinson, posts on Duncan Robinson because he gets him when he runs the floor. Okay, drive at a dunk to make it 24-22. A lob from Jalen Brown makes it 26-22. First quarter, 11 points, five of eight, six boards, one of three from deep. Second quarter, gets to the line. Bam can't cover him. Gets Bam to follow him, gets to the free throw line, hits two free throws. Elbow jumper against the zone. Supposed to try and all this shit to try to throw off Porzingis. Doesn't matter. Hits the jumper in the zone. Okay, then he gets Bam on him. Double up fake, which I think he could have taken the first one, but then he gets to the free throw line, right? I think he should have taken the three. But my point is, halftime, the guy's got 16 points. And everything that you're doing is working with him. The Heat had no answer. And this is the whole reason that Porzingis is here. He's the guy that is different from anything you've had on the team in recent years. And where is he late in the game? 
I don't know. He's on the bench. And then when I just, it, to me, like I'm, I'm at a loss here. This guy is so dominant when he's in the game. We know that this is the difference with the team and they didn't use it. In crunch time, it should be, hey, Derek White, high pick and roll, Kristaps Porzingis, if you want to run some of that with Jason Tatum, sure. And I understand there's a hierarchy with this team and all that, but at least involve Porzingis every time down the floor and at least have him in the game. And like I said, I'm going to give Joe the benefit of the doubt with saying it must have had something to do with the situation as it pertains to the fact that he left that game with a bone with a bruise, I should say, on his back. I thought I was like, I didn't even know what was wrong. I got to be honest with you. Like, I love Porzingis, as you guys know from listening to the pod. But I do wonder sometimes, like, what, he if he's gotten hurt so many times that any time he feels something, he leaves the game. Because he came back in after this one tonight. Like, I, I, or today, I should say. It's just we, like every time that something happens, you're like, is he going to be okay? Is he not going to be okay? So to me, I just... These are the two things that stuck out to me in this game is I don't know why the whole offseason was about changing things up and specific for this matchup. And I know the Heat aren't the second best team in the East right now, but this for this matchup, they knew that offensively they needed a different dimension. Kristaps Porzingis is that different dimension. He's not on the court and Jalen Brown is making bad decisions late. So this whole idea, like people want to talk about the team takes too many threes, blah, 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 all this. Well, did you see the threes tonight? They're generating really good corner threes. I've never had an issue with that. You guys have heard me talk about them. My issue is not the threes. My issue is the attention to detail late in the games. And I know the clutch numbers on the season are really good in terms of the record. I just wonder, when you get into these tight games, will you make the right decisions? And are you going to be running the right stuff late in the game? And in this one tonight, I know the Celtics won, but they were not running the right stuff late in the game. And that, to me, is just a sign of, I know they have the ability to win these games playing through Kristaps Porzingis late. We saw how dominant he was in the first quarter. Why wouldn't you want to run everything through that guy late in the game? So to me, that was the biggest thing that stuck out to me, other than Jalen's situation. That For Jalen, that's just, you can't defend what you did, man. I mean, that's a little bit too much. I thought Tatum was really good in this game. 10 boards, 9 assists to go along with the 26 points. Had that great pass to Jalen on the cut that we referenced with Jalen to make it 106-101. He was awesome. And the other guy that deserves a lot of credit is Drew. Drew, 15 points. And he was 5 of 6 from deep. Hit five threes. He's been unbelievable from deep. And he had a couple of big ones, right, in the fourth quarter of this game. Step back on Robinson to make it 82-75. The wing three, which eventually came off a Tatum double. The assist went to Pritchard, but it was because of a Tatum double. That made it... 85-75, and the biggest play he made in this game, 106-104, locks down Tyler Hero, where Bam tried to screen Drew Holiday off Tyler Hero twice, couldn't do it. Drew would not let him screen him off him. So that was just an outstanding defensive possession. And now if you look at it with Drew, prior to this game, the 23 games since the Warriors lost, 54 of 115 from deep, that's 47%. That's the eighth best mark in the NBA of players that have had a minimum of at least 80 attempts. He's their fifth guy, and he has been absolutely tremendous for this team. All he wants to do is win. He does all the right things. He's sacrificing a ton of shots, so he deserves a lot of credit for how this team has been performing this season, and he doesn't really get mentioned, right? Like, we talk about, oh, should Derek White have been an all-star? Should Porzingis have been an all-star? And clearly, those guys have better cases than Drew, but he deserves a ton of credit for what he's done for this team. One other concern. So, they mentioned it on the ABC broadcast that the Celtics starters have not been as good lately. So I looked into those numbers. So since the start of January, and these numbers will get a little bit better after today, of course, because the Celtics won and all those guys were in the positive. 
So if you look at since the start of January, 10 games prior to this one, 138 minutes, the Celtics a 113.6 offensive rating. This is with the starters. That's 21st in the NBA. That would be 21st in the NBA in terms of if you looked at the season rankings. Their defensive rating during that stretch is 120.2. 29th. Okay, worse than the Detroit Pistons. That would be 29th in the NBA, 120.2 defensive rating. The net rating is minus 6.6, 26. That would be worse than the Memphis Grizzlies. And they've been outscored by 12 total points. So the thing that sticks out to me is the defensive rating being 120.2. I think some of that is shot selection. It ends up in a lot of transition points for the opposition. But for this team, with those starters for a stretch of 138 minutes to have a 120.2 defensive rating with Drew Holiday, Derek White, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and Chris House Porzingis, it's just inexplicable. So that's something to monitor because pre-January, they were awesome. 16 games, 282 in terms of the minutes. Offensive rating, 122.2, which would be by far the best in the league. 102.5 defensive rating, which would be by far the best in the league. Minnesota's the best at 108.6. The net rating would be 19.6. The Celtics have the best net rating in the NBA at 9.6. So 10 points better than their own best mark in the NBA. So that's just something where... I think it may be just paying attention to detail, maybe some bad shot selection at times and some bad transition defense. I reference how bad the transition defense was in that Clippers game. So maybe that's part of it. And like the Wizards game the other night, that it felt like to me at times they knew they were just so much more talented than them that at times they felt to be going through the motion. So something to look out for in terms of those numbers because the numbers with Al Horford have been really good. So it's just an interesting thing to sort of monitor going forward here, but... Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to sound like I'm super down on this team because they have the best record in the NBA, clearly. But it's just that game today reminded me of what's happened in the postseason before. And the Porzingis thing is just like, man, come on, you, you got this ultimate weapon. Why weren't you using it more? OK, thanks to our friends at FanDuel. Let's give you a same game parlay for the Celtics and Nets coming up on Tuesday night. So about Tatum for 25 points, Drew Holiday for two made threes because he's just been tremendous from deep. Kristaps Porzingis for 20 points and the Celts on the money line. So you have the Celts on the money line, Porzingis 20, Drew two made threes, and Tatum for 25 points. Make sure you play that with our friends at FanDuel. And if you win, give me all the credit. If you lose, I don't want any of the blame. But if you win, give me all the credit. All right, coming up next, we'll check in with Joe Murray from 98.5 The Sports Hub. Get buckets with your first bet on FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Because right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 bet. And I'm looking at the Celtics and the Nets game coming up on Tuesday night. How about a same game parlay for that? Tatum, 25 points. Kristaps Porzingis, 20 points. Drew, two made threes. And the Celtics on the money line. That's $150 back if your bet doesn't win. Bet on all your favorite NBA players and teams with quick bets, live same game parlays, exclusive props, and more. Just visit FanDuel.com slash Pike and shoot your shot. FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NBA. Must be 21 plus in presidents like states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit TheRinger.com slash RG. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from 98.5 The Sports Hub, it is Joe Murray. Joe, we're recording before the Super Bowl, so I hope that all your Super Bowl picks hit and you have a great gambling night. Thanks so much for joining us on Super Bowl Sunday, man. How are you? Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm down with talking a little bit of non-Super Bowl stuff. 
uh, before the Celtics and before we get going, man. So appreciate it. All right. So let's get to the Patriots because, of course, they're nowhere close to the Super Bowl at this particular point in time. But they did have a really busy offseason. So I do want to get to some grades thus far with some of the hires they've made. But before we get into some Patriots grades, let's get into some news. Not a shocker, but Ann Rappaport of the NFL Network had today that even though Bill Belichick's gone, they're going to look to move on from Mac Jones and trade him. Nobody thought that Mac was going to be around after this season. I guess there was a little bit of that at the beginning of the offseason, like Mayo's not ruling it out. But if you look at it in terms of possible destinations for Mac, first of all, like the Patriots are not going to get a lock back for Mac Jones based on the way that he played last season. Like his trade value is at its nadir right now. But I'm looking at it from Mac's scenario here, like what would be a good fit for Mac? So I'm looking through these teams. The other components he's going to deal with is Justin Fields, in all likelihood, is going to get moved, right? Kirk Cousins is a free agent. And look, I'm sure that the Minnesota Vikings want to have Cousins come back, but Kirk Cousins has been really good in terms of making the most possible money he possibly can in his NFL career. His wife's from Georgia. Maybe he goes to Atlanta. So that throws a whole different scenario in this. And a lot of teams look at Mac as not a starting quarterback right now. So with Mac, the teams that I look at, I would say the Raiders, because we'll see. I know Josh isn't there anymore, but the Raiders, that's an interesting scenario in some regards because they do need a quarterback. Denver, I do wonder what the endorsement would be from Bill to Sean Payton. Like, that's a team that could use a quarterback. We'll see what happens with Russell Wilson. The Giants do have Daniel Jones under contract, but another team that could say, okay, maybe we bring in Mac to compete. Tampa, I just assume it's going to be Baker Mayfield. Now, you could do, Mark Daniels mentioned this a couple weeks ago with us, like he could do like the rehab play with Sean McVay for a year, go play backup quarterback, although they do have Carson Wentz. And then to me, like Atlanta's the best scenario for him because you think about who went there, Zach Robinson is the offensive coordinator and he's a McVay guy, which certainly could help. And they have all the weapons in the world. I just wonder what Max market's going to be based on how things ended here. But from your perspective, what do you think's the best fit for Mac? Uh, San Fran is the best fit by far. Mm. Uh, they were interested, at least it was reported at the draft they were interested. They're going to lose Sam Darnold this year. Um, it might be just a play to have an insurance policy if something happens with Brock Purdy. Um, that's that's probably number one. The Rams is a perfect one. Like let them sit behind Stafford. They've generally their backup plays right. So that's probably another one that I would look at um, on that end. And then you mentioned the Falcons, maybe. But, um, I, you know, the, the third team, It's not, we obviously know it's not the Patriots, and I don't think it'll be anybody in that division. But someone's going to take a shot on them. You mentioned the Bears. That could be interesting as well. But I, I, I for some reason, I feel NFC. I feel like a team that maybe already has someone in front of them with an insurance policy there. But uh, the only thing I don't like about this is, has Gerard Mayo or the Patriots tipped their hand a little bit in a lot of things? You know, it sounds like they're going to pick a quarterback. And now it sounds like they want to trade Mac Jones. So there you go. All the value to trade him's out the window. And really, any team that, you know, there's no threat of taking Marvin Harrison or some other player at three. So to me, this is an experience tipping your hand. That's what I don't like about it. So although I don't want Mac back, I at least thought they could get maybe a fifth round conditional fourth, something to that degree, like a Trey Lance deal. But Tipping their hand early on, I this seems like it's an experience and completely different from Belichick. Yeah, and remember Mayo's like first interview he did. Who was it with Mike Reese? Where he's like, 
yeah, we're going to be take or was it with Steve Burton? I think it may have been with Steve Burton, but he's like, yeah, we're going to take somebody at a really important position. So it's a good point. And the Niners, I didn't even think about that. That would make a lot of sense. I mean, Darnold went there last season to sort of be the backup quarterback. And a lot of people thought, hey, maybe Darnold will get a chance to play. But Purdy has stayed pretty healthy. And the reason I throw out teams like the Raiders and the Falcons is just if Max representation can get him somewhere where, hey, maybe he has a chance to play like actual, like actually compete for the job. Although I think it may help him to just like be the backup for a year somewhere because clearly he was broken after what we saw last year. Okay, so another thing I wanted to get to is Rappaport mentions, as everybody has thought that the Patriots are going to take a quarterback in the top three. So are you all in and taking a quarterback in the top three? And if so, do you have a preference between Drake May and Jaden Daniels? So the Joe Murray big board of QBs is still Caleb Williams, Drake May. And I I, I, don't, I assume it's it's Jaden Daniels. Um, I think of the three, Daniels can play right away. I just think he has the least upside. He's 23 years old, had his best season in LSU, and played with two potentially top 10 uh, draft pick wide receivers. So... I'm a little weird on Daniels because I know he can play. I know he's got 440 speed, but like, I don't know. I didn't love him at Arizona State. The kid is tough, though. I'll tell you that much. He's tough. Um, well, you know, is he the the next guy for the league? Probably, but upside. I want upside. I don't want a guy. You know what I mean? So if you're going quarterback, give me someone with some upside. Drake May, believe it or not, I've talked to some people all around. They think his rushing ability is better than his actual passing ability, which I don't necessarily agree with. Um, and Caleb Williams, I think, is the upside, but the intangibles are, are there and they're real. So that that's my big board. But do they need to take a do they need to take quarterback? No. But if they're trading Mac, they're basically letting it be known they want a quarterback. Maybe that's PR spin. I, I prefer Marvin Harrison Jr. But if this Joe Alufashanu and it's going to be a rebuild like two or three years like it's being reported or at least being suggested as. Um, I'd go tackle for the simple. It's boring. Trade back, right? Trade back, get one of these tackles, continue to build in other spots. That's where I stand. But as far as a quarterback, I want a veteran and draft if they're going to do it. Interesting. Okay, so the reason I may be higher on Jaden Daniels than you is just like, the running ability is incredible. Number one in yards per attempt this past season for quarterback, second in missed tackles for uh, for uh, forced rather. He was number one in 10 yard runs. And the other thing is I feel like nowadays when your quarterback can run. So I like what you said about May. That's that's interesting that he could actually they could actually feature more in the running game, kind of like Josh Allen coming out of Wyoming. They decided to hey, for a thousand yards, thousand yards in yeah. college. That's yeah, I, and he's athletic, man. He can throw on the run. I love Drake. May. I loved him from the start, too. And I grew more in love with Jaden Daniels as the season went on and watching some LSU games. And the other thing is like his deep passing numbers are really, really good. Now to your point, some of that may be like, Hey, Malik neighbors is wide open. Like he's wide open down the field so you can hit him. So that may be part of it too. But having that run element does elevate the floor. The reason that I think it has to be a quarterback. One of the things I worry about, and this changes every year, right? Like, so Jaden Daniels was not considered to be a big time prospect at all prior to this season. Right. We actually saw this same thing happen with Joe Burrow a couple of years ago, where he's at Ohio State, he transfers to LSU. The first year, it's like, okay, he's all right. And then 2019 rolls around, he's by far the best quarterback in the country, and he's been a great NFL quarterback. So that could happen with somebody next season. But you look at the quarterback class and you say, Shador Sanders, Quinn Ewers, and I'm trying to think about some of the other guys that you have that 
could be coming out next season. Um, you think about Riley Leonard. It's it just like it, it, we were coming into this season knowing that you were going to have these two guys at the top, Drake May and Caleb Williams. And now Jaden Daniels has sort of joined the party. So that would be my only fear is, hey, if you don't get the quarterback now, are you going to be able to get him in next year's draft? Or are you still searching for a quarterback the year after? You know what I mean? So that's why I'm like, are they ever going to be top three again? I mean, maybe they could have a really bad season again. I mean, I'm not ro- ruling that out of the realm of possibilities, but I feel like you got to find at least the guy you think is going to be the quarterback for the near future this offseason. So it's interesting you say that. Um, didn't we feel this way with the Trevor Lawrence draft? Um, you know, Fields, yeah, Lawrence. true. And, and, and really, uh, who's the best one? It, it's probably Lawrence, but is it? anything to really be excited about um field still has the upside <laughs> like if you were and we trey lance is an unknown and mac jones is you know and wilson i mean it's just you look at it and say you're probably going to hit or miss on some some of these guys but i do think next year will be better like i i shador sanders i'm not even sold on but like drew aller i think is a guy that can play like in that carson beck could play himself into being one of these guys but quinn ewers i think would be I would take Quinn Ewers over any of these quarterbacks, maybe besides Caleb Williams. He's probably the one guy. Yeah. You know what's kind of confusing about the Ewers thing is, like, what's going to happen with Arch Manning? He's just going to stay there and be the backup at Texas again this upcoming season? It's just weird, right? I mean, this is a guy that came in with, like, I think he's number two. Like, he's not going to be hurting financially. I think he's number two in NIL money. I think it's, like, him and... Shador Sanders are like number one and number two, but it's kind of weird if he's just going to be the backup again. Or last year, he's yeah, third string. Yeah, I know. And uh, maybe maybe they'll run up the score and he'll get some uh, looks here. But that that's an interesting point. I, I think I saw that somewhere this morning in between was the, you know, the f- drafting a quarterback this year in fear of next year and how a lot of teams would be interested in moving up. Um, I, I didn't think of it like that, but I, don't let next year bother you in that case. Like, I, I I wouldn't do that. I, that, that. That's something I would I would stay away from. But uh, the the need to draft a quarterback, it sounds like the Patriots have it right. Or what I mean is they want it. They want other teams to know they want a quarterback. If they if they somehow have a heel turn and take a tackle or or trade back, I I actually would be in on that. But the, it's weird. You 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 just said it. There are people who are sold on doing it a certain way. Sold on a quarterback. So whoever it is, one of the three, who cares? I'm not yet, but I do like the idea of drafting a guy and having a veteran. Yeah, so it's interesting. You you basically feel like if Drake May drops, without question, you would take him at number three, right? You're just questioning yeah. whether or not you're there with Daniels. And the other thing I just thought of when you mentioned that is, well, if the perception is what I think the perception is of the quarterbacks like coming out next year, maybe that is a way to get more draft capital going forward where it's like, you're never going to get this much value for the third pick. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe why that's maybe I shouldn't give the Patriots this much credit, but maybe that's why they're yeah. putting it out there. They're like, let's see how much we can possibly get for this pick. Okay, so before we get back to the Pats, I did want to take a quick detour to Bill O'Brien because you've been all over the story this week. So Bill O'Brien goes to BC. He was, what, 15 and 9, I believe, at Penn State. He was only there for a short time, the two years after the Paterno scandal. And then he goes to the Texans. He's 52 and 48 there, I believe. One of the, I mean, probably the best coach off Belichick's tree. Obviously, it wasn't great here this year with, with Bill O'Brien and Mac and 
we know how that season ended. But I actually think this is a pretty good hire for BC because you think about the local connections that he has here. He obviously went to the prep. So, I mean, the prep is still one of the best high school teams in the state. They won the state two years ago. I think they won in 2019, too. I mean, my dad would be pissed at me if I didn't remember that correctly because he went to the prep. But they definitely won in 2022. I remember that because they had a kid that went to Georgia. So I think he's going to be able to make connections with coaches around the state. And the other thing I would say about O'Brien is he's at the point in his career where he's not really a guy that is going to be looking to like keep elevating himself. Right. So I do think like and he's from the area. So I do think it's not only is it a safe hire. I, I, I did not think he did a great job this year with the Patriots, but I think it's a pretty good hire for BC as a program. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, I thought Bill O'Brien was the biggest suspect going just coming to New England. I never thought it would work. I never did. And I don't want to do a victory lap here on on your show here, but <laughs> I, I, I never, ever, ever thought it was going to work. Ever. But it was more about, um, he he understands college football. Like, he gets it. He, he knows his problem is when he's running the place, he gets too caught up in maybe uh, the percentages. Like, maybe that's one thing they're looking at. Like Alabama ran the ball too much, and I know they had Gibbs, and I don't want to bore you with the details. They, they scored 40 points a game, but really it was against really bad teams. And when they played against good teams, it was a 40-40 affair. He kept them in it because he knows how to run an offense. Long story short, I love the hire to BC. I couldn't <laughs> have been so, so flip side. Talk about turning heel. They never get anybody like this. Dude, I'll take you back years ago where where um, Jeff Jagosinski was the coach and he wanted to interview for the Jets job. And Gene DiFilippo was like, you, you can't do that. And he said, we're not a stepping stone school. Since then, they moved to the ACC. They've had some of the worst seasons they've ever had. Sorry, it's a stepping stone school, but wasn't that what Bill O'Brien's been doing for the last five, six years? But to your point, I think he wants to be here. I think he wants to stay here. And if he can elevate BC into something we can talk about on the radio or in the media, in. So I think he can still call plays and he's going to inherit a pretty good team. But now the portal, do people want to come here? The other thing is this, you kept talking about elevating. I think Chip Kelly's now the guy to elevate. I think he's going to play well, uh, coach well, and now he's going to get a head coach. Who leaves head coaching jobs for downgrades? It's it's amazing, but I think it's the portal. Yeah, it's so weird, Chip, Chip Kelly's decision. I know like the boosters, the alumni were not fond of Chip, so he probably felt like, hey, I'm eventually going to get fired here. I might as well move on. And I know he coached Ryan Day at – I think it's at UNH when Ryan Day was a player there. And I think Ryan Day joined his staff that I was shocked by that. I'm like, wait, he's leaving a, a power four, I guess now school, right? To be the offensive coordinator at Ohio State. It's just crazy. And to your point about Bill O'Brien running the ball too much, maybe that's what you need to do at BC. Like, remember, they used to have they used to always have great linemen and they could run the football. Maybe that's what they'll get back to. I remember, too, like 2007 when they had Matt Ryan who was it that they lost to on a Thursday night game? I think it might have been USF at the time. Remember, like, nobody could... That that was the weirdest year, 2007. It's the year LSU won the title. But every time some team moved up to number two in the country, they would lose. And I remember Matt Ryan yeah. lost on a Thursday night game, which stunk. Okay, so let's get to Steve Belichick, because he's going to college, too. He takes the coordinator job at Washington. He's going to be working for Jed Fish, who, of course, was here with the Patriots. 
I was looking at their schedule. They play Michigan. They play USC. And not a like for going into this conference, not as tough as a schedule as I thought it would be. And I think easily if he has a good year at Washington, he if he wants to become a defensive coordinator again in the NFL, he can. I think that he did a pretty good job. I mean, the Patriots since 2019 are number one in EPA per play on defense. I think it's kind of low key, a kind of a big loss for the Patriots on the defensive side because we don't know who's going to be calling the defense. But I, I wonder what Steve really wants. Like, does he eventually want to be a head coach or is he just cool, like being a defensive coordinator in different places? Because I do think that he would have got offers to, or at least interviews for DC jobs this cycle. But I think what happened is he's probably waiting for his dad to see like, hey, is my dad going to get the Falcons job or not? So he's kind of in a holding process. And I think at that point, he's left without a job. And I know Brian decided to come back, but do you really want to work for the guy that just fired your dad? Or, hey, do you want to try something else? And maybe he'll get more credit if Washington has a good defense, because that was Washington's problem. I mean, they were really good at offense. And I know, obviously, coaching changed there with Jed Fish coming in. But I don't know. I think it's an interesting decision for Steve. And I've always thought he was a good coach. I think that he gets unfairly criticized at times. I I love Jed Fish, man. I I think what he did at Arizona was outstanding. And him bringing in Steve Belichick, another great, just great personnel move for him in, in his future. To your point, I don't know what he wants to do either. You know, like I, I thought Rutgers might have been somewhere, but Washington's a big time program. I think they're going to struggle a little bit, though. They're going to go into the Big Ten. That's a different ball game. Now you got the Wisconsin. You know what I mean? You're playing against some big boys. Um, but I'm interested to see what what Steve what Steve Belichick can do. But you know, he's obviously not going to be the coach there. And if Belichick does come back in 25, could he be named an actual defensive coordinator? To the point where he's the successor. Yeah. That's probably the long-term plan. But, hey, now he's away from his other brother. He's on his own. I mean, big-time college football program with a great coach. Who not, you know, Like I said, the, the sky's the limit for Steve Belichick. Um, I kind of like him because he's he, he looks crazy. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I played ball, dude. Whenever, whenever, like, some guy yelled and fired you up, you'd run through a wall for those guys. He seems like one of those guys. Um, so, and you're, to your point, the Pats might miss him, but now we'll find out how much of an important, important piece he was. Yeah. It could help him in two ways. It's like, Whoa, hold on. The Patriots defensive personnel is actually better because now you have Christian Gonzalez back in the fold. Barmore took a step forward this year. I mean, he was legitimately one of the best pass rushers from the defensive line perspective. If you're talking about just interior guys, like he graded out really well. And if that defense takes a step back, it's like, Whoa. What's different now? Oh, Steve Belichick's not here. So I think that could be fascinating to watch it. And then if he gets Washington to maybe play better defensively than they did last year, and I know they made the national title run, but that was basically off their offense and Michael Penix. So I'm interested to see how that shakes out for Steve. All right, so Alex Van Pelt's in. We're learning basically Elliot Wolf is running everything because he's just bringing his friends back. Ben McAdoo who I, I said the other day, Joe, I forgot this guy existed. I, I remember the huge suit that he wore at his Giants press conference. I remember that huge sheet that he used to have when he was the play caller for the Giants and previously with the Packers. So if you had to put a grade on the, I would say the the two guys they brought in, Van Pelt and McAdoo, to sort of run the offense, I personally would give it a C-. minus. I know that they did bring in a quarterback's coach, too, in McCartney that does have some experience in the Shanahan offense. But to me, like, I, 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 I'm just confused the whole time we heard, like, McVay offense, McVay offense. And, like, 
everybody they brought in had some sort of connection to McVeigh. And then all of a sudden, Alex Van Pelt interviews and less than 40, less than what, 36 hours later, he's got the job and we find out, oh, well, yeah, he worked with Elliot Wolf. To me, it just feels like, was this just their plan the whole time? They were waiting for Van Pelt to become available out of all people. So I, I don't know how the script just got changed so quickly. Did they wait because they were like, hey, we interviewed all these guys and this is the guy that stuck out more so than anybody else. Like they they just wanted on their resume that they interviewed all these people. I I'm, I'm confused by the whole decision. I mean, obviously I'm much lower on McAdoo than I am Van Pelt. I like the fact that Van Pelt coached with Kevin Stefanski, who of course is a really good coach, just won the coach of the year of juggling all those different quarterbacks. But again, Van Pelt wasn't calling the plays there. So I'll give you a grade. I'll give it a C. I like it a little bit more. Guy probably hasn't had an opportunity to truly be to truly run an offense in a while now. Um, so I'm gonna give it a C because I think he's worked well with a lot of different quarterbacks. So that that's my grade. My take, they never had a plan. Never. They had how many guys say how many guys said no? How many said no? Right? Right. How, they want so from what I heard, this is what I heard. Cause you know, I don't have sources. I this is really true, Brian. We don't have sources. People just text me. <laughs> like, hey, Joe, this is what I got. Hey, uh, cool. It's not a source. They just send it to us. So please understand, no sources. People just love to tell me things. Sean Waldron was their guy. They wanted him. He was in the building years ago. That was their guy. Sounded like he never wanted to interview because he never thought he'd get paid. And that's mm. why I was screaming, if they want to burn cash, burn it on an offensive coordinator. So, again... Uh, I'm not the first guy to say that either. They wanted him. Then they went after a McVeigh guys didn't work out. And even Nick Cayley was probably who they zeroed in on and wanted a payday. They didn't pay him. So what's the story on Van Pelt? When you get fired, that means you still were under contract. Meaning Patriots aren't paying him. Same thing with McAdoo. So Bill Belichick got blamed for that for how long? They never had a plan. And to sum this up quicker, Gerard Mayo behind the scenes had an extent, uh, had had a contract that he was going to be the successor. The Boston Sports Journal reported this week there was a buyout. How do we know that Elliot Wolf didn't have the same thing? If Elliot Wolf's so great, how come he wasn't interviewing elsewhere? I think Wolf and Mayo, that was the plan. Everything else they're doing, they're, I call them the Wolf Packers. Oh, Wolf Packers. <laughs> they're all Wolf guys from the Packers, now with the Patriots. Interesting. Yeah, well, and the other thing, too, is the whole time it was like, well, Elliot Wolf is in all these interviews. He's the one that's conducting all these searches. It's like, oh, okay, so Elliot Wolf's the GM. Like, I never bought into the thing that they were essentially saying, like, when Mayo was given the job, hey, we may, like, basically they were saying, like, we have internal candidates that we need to get through first. It's like, well, if you really want to hire a GM, you would also be bringing in external candidates at the same time. Like, why should people in this front office have a better chance to get the job than somebody on the outside when this team has had a really bad drafting record over the past couple of years? I mean, longer than that at this point in time. So that to me was always sort of, it didn't pass the smell test at the time. It's like, no, it's going to be Elliot Wolf, because I, I didn't want it to be macro. I mean, I prefer it to be Wolf over Grow, considering at least Grow. I mean, at least Wolf has a background in other places. But yeah, I mean, if if they wanted Shane Waldron and he goes to the Bears and he was afraid that he wasn't going to get paid, 
I that's a scary thought. And look, there is justification for this because Mike Reese a couple of weeks ago had the note that the Patriots, what was it, um, last in cash spending over the last decade. This is going back 10 years. And Robert Kraft got all sensitive about it. He said, I know there's a perception that we've held back on spending. Let me just say for our fans, that's not true. Look, we were blessed to have a coach in our system who was a great coach and also understood value. He ran a tight ship. Our coaches have always had the ability to spend at whatever level they wanted. I think Bill was always thinking about the future and really understood the value. I've actually tried to go to us and sign players who maybe would have cost more but wouldn't have been the right players or value. So again, like this offseason, the smear campaign of Belichick continues to go on. Hey, I'm the owner of the team. I know we've been last in spending over the last decade. I actually tried to tell Bill, hey, Bill, spend more of my money, man. I want to get more players. And Bill told me no, like as if you didn't have the power to overrule the head coach of the team. But secondarily, like he's this whole offseason, it's been about, hey, this is going to be a collaborative effort in terms of what's going on with the front office stuff. Right. And that's why I said, like, they didn't bring in external candidates. They just feel like, hey, we remove Bill. We remove the problem. And now we're essentially saying, oh, we're going to spend money now because Bill's not here. So Bill didn't want to spend the owner's money. And it's all Bill's fault with every decision they made. And I'm not saying that Bill's done a good job in terms of what he's done with the roster over the past couple of years. But to me, it's like, it's incredible the lengths that Kraft will go to to try to take no blame for anything. I feel like I'm watching the Tom Brady thing again when Brady left. And first, remember first he tried to blame Tom and he called up Stephen A. Smith and he's like, hey, if Tom wanted to be here, he would. And he realized that's not going to work because if you just gave him the Drew Brees contract, maybe Tom would have been here. But then it was all about, it was Bill's fault. It was Bill's decision. Well, it's like, you also pay Bill and your decision was to stay with Bill. You could have said, you know what, actually, Bill, if you don't pay him, Tom's going to be here and you're not going to be here. So he's, it's almost as if he'll take credit for any little thing the Patriots do right. But anything that goes poorly, it's no, it's, it can never be any of his fault. Again, uh, he'll say the same thing when it comes to trading a first round pick for Bill Belichick and all these things as well. So, right. <clears throat> but it doesn't take ownership for some other things. Um, you know, just to have, if we're looking at the offense right now, the two guys who are who are scouting, who have a great track record of it, and the guys calling the plays are being paid by other teams. And if you want to dig a little bit more into the coaching staff, yeah, look at that line coach with the Panthers. Look into that one a little bit when you have some time. <clears throat> Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's an interesting offseason so far for the Patriots. What about the defensive side of the ball? Do you like so Hightower comes back, which I think is cool. Hightower is one of my favorite Patriots of all time. He just he made so many clutch plays. We think back to the Seattle Super Bowl, the Butler interception, but like Hightower's tackle before that on Marshawn Lynch, who's like one of the toughest guys to tackle in the league, kind of flies under the radar, the strip sack of Matt Ryan. He dealt with injuries, but it's nice to have him back in the building as the linebackers coach, but a lot of inexperience when we're talking about Demarcus Covington at 34 taking over. And the only reason I'm concerned about Mayo is like it's his first time being a head coach. And sometimes when you're trying to do multiple things, like I'm interested to see, like, is Covington calling the defense? Is it going to be is it going to be a collaborative process? Like, I'm sure Mayo is going to be involved heavily, of course, in the game planning aspect. But like when you're coaching for the first time, there's a lot you have to deal with, like on actual game day and I do feel like even some of the great offensive minds in the NFL they can struggle on game day at times like Sean McVay's made a lot of bad decisions at times during games he's a great coach he's won a Super Bowl but I do wonder like how the defensive operation is going to work so I give I give the move a C as well but I'm, I'm, I'm it's, it's not grading this one on a curve 
<laughs> I gave I gave Van Pelt a curve. Uh, this one here, I think, is a solid C. Everyone in house wanted him. He's moved up the ranks. He deserves the role. Um, are there are there more qualified defensive coordinators out there? Absolutely. So it's not sexy, but I agree with the move. And to your point, Mayo's going to run the offense and probably running that defense anyways. Maybe he'll be a collaborative effort, but the defense at times wasn't my biggest problem. Um, and, and when they were bad, I felt like it was a Belichick philosophy that was bad. Last 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 couple of years, maybe even last year for that matter, I thought they were tight all over, even with like some non-talented players all over. Um, I think the defense is going to be still up to par, but uh, the, the addition of, of Hightower, though, this is another one where they tip their hand on it. They said, if I was the coach of the team, I don't know if you remember that one from last year, but Mayo said that and he goes, and Dante Hightower would be his linebacker coach. And here it is. And if you want, and if you want to, this is going to be a spoiler, not a prediction. I think LeGarrette Blunt will be the running backs coach for the New England Patriots. Interesting. Well, that's good for the pod because we're worried about James White because he comes on after Patriots game. So it's good for the pod that, that it's going to be Blunt. Yeah, this that's interesting. I was always a big Blunt fan. I mean, the guy ever since he remember when he left and then he it wasn't working out and he came back and he was good again. It was him and uh, Le'Veon Bell. Remember that car? Yeah, in a car. Yeah, smoking yeah. weed in the car. Yeah. Uh, hey, it worked. Worked out for the Patriots, right? No, it certainly did. It certainly did. All right, Joe. Before we let you go, so the Bruins have been so good pre All Star break, and then they lose to Calgary on Tuesday night. I'm like, all right, first game back, whatever. And then they beat Vancouver. They shut out the best team in the Western Conference. But then this game rolls around on Saturday. They're playing the Capitals, who the Capitals are third to last in the NHL in goals per game. The Bruins had, at one point, they were getting outshot 20 to 5. They had seven shots after the first two periods, by far the fewest that they've had after two periods in a game this season. So is this the, hey, this is just the dog days of the season, Although, you know, it's 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 at home Saturday afternoon. I figured you'd kind of be up for that game. But are you concerned at all, or do you just think this is sort of the dog days of the season? I think that for a calendar year, they've been the best team in the NHL for a calendar season. And I don't think the talent is as good this year. But I, I got the other night when Swayman started the first game, I thought that they should have went with Allmark because he had nine days off. Hmm. Comes back the next game, pitches a shutout, and I went, all right, all right, fine, I'll take the L. Well, now I'm backtracking on my L. So, is Allmark the guy, or is it Swayman? Are they going to go every other? Is this the philosophy? Because it is it is kind of true, and I'll give Ty Anderson some credit for this at 98 Father Sports Hub. He thinks the identity of the team is their goaltending. It is. But the goaltending is not the reason why they lost yesterday, uh, not showing up or losing to Calgary the other night. Um, they just, at times, their their players are passengers. And Zach has been good of late. Marshan continues to... Pasternak's doing his thing. Coyle's been outstanding. But there are just nights where the way their roster is built, they just have a lot of passengers, meaning guys who just are out there. And their defense struggles often and that's probably where they need to make a move so do i think they'll be fine yes does it matter until the playoffs it doesn't um but i think maybe this is where they need some moves and losing patra now they got to get another you know forward in there 
maybe this is kind of an maybe the time to make a move to give guys some time off to get back on track. Yeah, and with Potra going forward, man, they got to give that kid a couple of stakes. He's got to put on some weight. Like, he, he looks so small out there. And look, this happened to Pasta early. And I'm not comparing the players, obviously. But Pasta early on in his career would get pushed off the puck. It's tough to make that adjustment. And then he had the whole thing where he went to juniors, too. So it may be good in the long run if, like, this is something that wasn't going to get better just to give him the rest of the year off, get the shoulder fixed up, and get ready to go next year. All right, that is Joe Murray from 98.5 The Sports Hub. Joe, thanks so much for the time, man. We appreciate it. Thank you, bud. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So I need to get your take on my Celtics Open there. Mm. Was I too harsh on the Celtics? Was I panicking too much or was I fair? I had the exact same reaction watching this game. I mean, just some some muscle memory. I mean, just seeing things just tighten up. I mean, I get tight. The Celtics get tight. It's just like it just feels it felt eerily familiar. I think one thing I think that you touched on that I I connected with, I thought that was interesting, is like the Chris Ups Porzingis thing, because that's the thing that's supposed to be different this year. That was supposed to be the silver bullet to fix their problems, but he's only as useful as the the coach will let him be. And I think that's the thing that maybe isn't getting talked enough about. It's just Missoula's role in this whole thing like is he do you think he's the guy that can take them to a championship I'm, I'm not sure all of a sudden which is too bad what do you think yeah I'm not like I I just I don't understand and like I said in the open I want to give Joe the benefit of the doubt with Porzingis not being on the floor but was it because he came out and his substitution mm-hmm. bat- pattern got messed up but it doesn't explain him not coming back in until like the 130 mark if you're gonna say he didn't come back in until the three 30 mark or the three minute mark okay that makes more sense to me because he came out with about six minutes left I don't know how he's not back on the court by then so yeah mm-hmm. that is something and I think that's the biggest test with Missoula this year is everybody it's so caught up in all this other stuff it's hey are they going to run the right stuff late Porzingis is here to beat teams like Miami that want to switch or they want to play zone are yep. they going to do the right things right or right things late so I think it's certainly a question what did you th- it's a fair question what did you think of the Jalen play because Duncan Robinson, after the game, said, I just thought it was a dirty play, to be honest with you. You know, that's how people miss entire seasons. Just thought it was dangerous, unnecessary, and excessive. The whole entire season thing, I think that's probably a little bit much based on what happened. But <laughs> he clearly could have, like, really injured his shoulder. Like, he could have he yanked his shoulder out of place there. I thought it was, I thought it was a pretty... I, first of all, it was terrible timing in the game. As we mentioned, it's 96-87, but... That was yeah. over the top for me with Jalen. Like, I, I don't know, even if you're wearing like Celtics footy pajamas watching that game, I, I don't know how you defend that play. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't like it either. I, I thought it was fair. They gave him a flagrant one. I think the only thing that kind of pissed me off is once they reviewed it, they called it how they should have, in my opinion, flagrant one. But then Duncan Robinson comes back out and starts bitching again to Jalen. It's like, dude, come on, move on. You got what you wanted. You know, just shoot your free throws and let's move on. So that was the only thing that bugged me. Yeah, why is Jalen, though, talking to the ref again after that? Dude, we can all see the play. Like, yeah. what is he complaining about? I, I don't understand why he's talking to the ref. Yeah, yeah and Duncan Robinson. That's was, true. By the way, I, I'm not a lip reader, but I think Jalen said to him when Duncan Robinson was coming back at him, what are you going to do? I can't read lips, but I'm pretty sure that's what Jalen Brown said. It's like, Duncan Robinson's still, like, talking to you, <laughs> to what you brought up. And Jalen's like, what, what are you going to do? I mean, I would... It's, they were going to get in some sort of an altercation. I, I would think that Jalen would win that pretty easily. But yeah, it's, man, it's a weird situation. 
it's just a weird thing to do too. Like I get you're both tangled up. I, take- I get it's the heat of the game, heat of the battle and all that, but it's like, it just, it was so unnecessary. Yeah. I mean, especially coming after a defensive foul. I mean, it flipped the, flipped the court or whatever, but uh, now I'm taking Jalen like minus, minus 1500 one-on-one against uh, Robinson in either basketball or boxing or whatever. Yeah, minus 1,500. Yeah, I think that would be relatively quick, that uh, <laughs> that altercation. All right, Jamie, good stuff, man. Thanks, Brian. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Zerudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Vermont, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia or call one 800 522 4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 